So we're going to be in uh, um, the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. This is part 5 of Restoring the People of God. The Bible says, After these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and then he just gives his genealogy. We'll run up to verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Um, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the month, he began his journey. And on the fifth day of the month, he came to the city according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So uh, again, the introduction, uh, descendants of Abraham eventually became the nation of Israel. Uh, through them, God was working to bring forth the people who would, in covenant with him, reflect the nature of God and bring the values and the purposes of the kingdom of God to bear in the earth. Throughout the centuries, the people of God would cycle through times of great devotion and victory, and then they would go through times of rebellion, idolatry, and defeat. Through their history, we see that God delivered them out of their captivity in Egypt into the promised land. When they got into a promised land, eventually they had a capital city called the city of Jerusalem where they built up from scratch. And then in that city, through a guy named David who had a vision for it, and through Solomon, they built up the temple of God. The temple of God was where the people would come and they would worship in Jerusalem. And so it was a wonderful uh, uh, history, what God did through his people. Unfortunately, uh, because of their rebellion and idolatry, uh, even though God was merciful to them, continue to send prophets to call them back to himself. Uh, unfortunately, as a result of their continued callousness and rebellion towards God, they ultimately found themselves captive to the nation of Babylon. The walls of the city they built were torn down. The temple that they built was destroyed, and they were now captives to the might of the enemy of God's people, Babylon. But like Woody said, God is good. <laughs> Doesn't matter how long you've been taking cab. Doesn't matter how long you've been out there. God is still good, and he can bring you back. Amen. Thankfully, God didn't leave things the way they were. He would once again sow himself strong towards his people as he began the process of restoring them to himself and to his purposes. In fact, before he, they ever got taken captive, God had told them, you're going to be taken captive. God made a promise to the people. It's a promise that we most of us already know. We just don't know the context of it. He said, for I know the thoughts, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place where I will cause you to be, uh, from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Now, previously, we've looked at the importance of knowing and then receiving the word in the process of the restoration of God's people. That was the last two weeks. And while I continue to use this passage in Ezra as the basis for this series, we're going to move beyond the book of Ezra into Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah was a contemporary of Ezra, and without minimizing the value of Ezra's work, it was not the end of the process of the restoration God was bringing to his people. Nehemiah's work in the process continues what Ezra started. And the third thing, the third point we want to look at is restoring the walls. In Nehemiah chapter 2, 5 through 6, the Bible says that Nehemiah, I said, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And he's talking about Jerusalem. And the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Now, in speaking again of the restoration of God's people, I would be remiss if I didn't give you this third phase of the restoration. You see, this would take place through another man that was commissioned by God to accomplish a specific purpose. You see, and let me just kind of stop here and say what often happens. Okay, people will, will find themselves in a position where things aren't going good in their life, and they realize, hey, at this particular, somebody invites you to church, the Spirit of God, through other people, say, hey, why don't you get saved? You get saved, and then that's where you stay for the rest of your life. Nothing else happens, right? And then some of those people that get saved will actually do what people tell them to do, which is you need to go to church, you need to get in the Bible, you need to read the Word of God, you know, you, you, you need to be baptized. You need to, and they actually do that, and so they start reading their Bible. When they start reading their Bible, things start changing in their life, all right? And that's where they stay. And now those are good things, right? And a strong church in the past has been those, but it's not where God wants us to stop. It's where we've stopped traditionally, but it doesn't mean that's where we're supposed to stop. God wants more for us. And that's what we want to see through Nehemiah is we want to see God's ultimate plan for his people and what God's ultimate plan is for us. You see, in Nehemiah, God sent a cupbearer again from the nation of Babylon to restore the walls of Jerusalem. He received his mandate around 446 this B.C. That's not important, except this is important. It was around 12 years after Ezra had been sent to Israel to restore the primacy of the Word of God to the people of God. So if you're keeping track, so far we're about 140 years into the beginning of the captivity and restoration of Israel. Remember when Jeremiah said, I know the plans I have for you? This is about 140 years after that. All right? So, 140 years is a long time. It's about how old T.R. is at. Where's T.R.? <laughs> so, if you're keeping track, we're about 140 years from the beginning of captivity and, and, and then back to the restoration of Israel. So, you see, once again, what I want you to realize is God's restoration doesn't always happen overnight. God's work in your life is not going to happen overnight. I've been saved, I got saved in 1985, and it, and, and it was a process, God working in my life. I saw sometimes great advances, and then I saw not so good advances, and then more advances, and not, but there was a continual process. And so wherever I'm at, you can get there. And you can get farther than me. My goal is not that you just get to where I'm at. My goal is that you get far beyond where I'm at, right? And I'm not saying I'm this great thing, but sometimes people see the pastor. They say, oh, man, I could never be like that. Oh, yes, you can. I started out just where you were. 
I'm in the exact same place. But sometimes you don't know what you can do if nobody lays it out there. This is what God wants for you, right? You, let's say you're a track. You, you start running track, and you start, oh, man, I just want to run track. I just want to run track. And, and, you know, you get out there, and then you see the, the varsity, and you see the seniors that are running, and you thought, man, I could never do that. Yeah, you can. They start in the same place that you did. But imagine if you had a coach that said, hey, you think what they're doing is great. I want you to know that some of these people went on and they started running four-minute miles and they began to run more. And you can't even run a 12-minute mile right now. But he says to you, I want you to know that if you work hard and you persevere in what it is that, and, you, and, and, and you have the ability that you can run a four-minute mile, all of a sudden the bar has been set. But imagine if the bar was, hey, man, I just want to go out there and I just want to get out and sweat a little bit, you know, and look good for the people in the stands and all that kind of stuff. If that was your bar, you're going to get there, maybe. But if your bar is set a little bit higher and say, hey, I'm going to win the four-minute mile, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break that four-minute mile somewhere down the road. How many of you know if you knew that's where you needed to go, you're going to work a little harder, you're going to persevere a little more, and you're going to gain more ground? And if you see someone that started where you are, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, and now they're, they're, they're this far down the road, it's going to challenge you. I used to play tennis, I know. It's going to challenge you to want to do that. And then you're going to get there, and then you're going to go farther beyond. So anything that I do or Bobby do or the elders do or, or those that are, that are older are doing right now, I just want to encourage you, you're going to get there. And our prayer is not just that you get to where at where we're at, because if you think that we're the end of the road, you've missed it. No, we're just we just got a little bit farther. We're like pioneers that got to we started out on the East Coast and maybe we got to Ohio. You think, oh man, if I can just get to Ohio, not realizing that you got all of this journey from Ohio all the way to California left. We need somebody to go past Ohio. We need somebody to go to Idaho. We need somebody to get into Colorado. I mean, Colorado. We need somebody to go into California, and you might be the one. Amen? Okay, so let me get back, all right? So things don't progress overnight, but God is committed, was committed then, and he's committed now to the full restoration of his people. The final part of this process, as we already stated, was the restoration of the city walls. <clears throat> the restoration of the temple had cemented the worship of God in the land. The teaching of the word had centered life around the truths of God. Now the rebuilding of the walls would establish the security of the people in the land, not so that they could just live inside the walls, but so that they could be moved from being harassed by the enemy into an offensive position and bring the kingdom of God to bear in the whole land. You hearing what I'm saying? In Nehemiah 13 and 15 and then 19 through 22, it says, In those days I saw people in Judah trading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves, loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. By the way, at that time, that's a no-no. Sabbath day was supposed to be set aside for the worship of God. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Jump down to verse 19. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they be not be open till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. And then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. 
different kind of laying hands that we do up here at the front, okay? We say we want to lay hands on you because we want to pray for you. That particular time was one of these. All right. <laughs> it was a Fred Sanford type. Well, okay. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. So what we see in this particular verse is that the walls and the gates were a guard and a protection over the city. When the walls were built and the gates were set in place, the city was strengthened and the will of God could be done. The rebuilding of the city walls and the setting of the city gates provided the means for Nehemiah to keep sin and compromise out. The walls and gates were also a place of strength and protection that allowed the Word of God to be established and enacted, not just in personal lives, but in society, in the land. See, we're so personal, we don't always realize that God, uh, uh, when he created man, he said it's not good for man to be alone. We said, well, that's why we get married. But yes, but we're all supposed to be fruitful and multiply. We're supposed to have connections with not just our family, our bloodline, but the people around us. Every one of us, whether we realize it or not, come from the same bloodline. If you go far enough back, we all come from the same person. And God intended that we work together, that we be together, that we somehow, uh, uh, that we live together, but that his kingdom purposes and principles would be enacted not just in our lives individually, but in our society, in the world around us. And that's what the city gates represent, a place of strength where God's rule can be established and then it can move out. In Isaiah 16 and 18, it says, Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither waste nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The walls were a place of strengthening, and ultimately they were a place of growth and maturity in God and the things of God. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, it says, He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints. How many of y'all are saints? If you don't raise your hand, we're going to have an altar call. And we're going to get you in. <clears throat> How many of y'all are saints? I didn't say a saint. You are saints. We're part, we're sanctified. We are part of the body of Christ. Everyone that knows Christ should have their hands raised. For, okay, to equip the saints, that means he's talking to y'all. That's, 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 see, that's where the, the southern... Uh, 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 colloquialisms really help because you don't have to say all of us you say y'all <laughs> it's for all y'all <laughs> that's when you want to include everybody more than just y'all it's all y'all how long until we all attain to the unity of faith and the, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. God wants us to grow up. Not in a bad sense, you need to grow up. Not like that. He wants us to grow up to become all he's in, he has purposed for us to be. So no longer to be children tossed through and to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, by everything that they're saying on Facebook and YouTube. No, it doesn't say that. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. He's talking about us. 
when each part, he's talking about us. Now, not your neighbor, although he is talking about them, not them only, but he's also talking about you. Each part, uh, uh, which is uh, by, uh, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice in this passage that God gives grace gifts to the church to equip the church to mature, to grow up into the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. Love, can you say love? Is, we're, 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 we just had uh, February the 12th. We had our Valentine's thing as a church for all the couples. So this is a great uh, uh, theme for the day. Love is one of the chief signs of a mature church. Love is one of the primary chief signs of a mature church. Let me say it again. Love is one of the chief signs of a mature and a, 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 a church in the Lord. How do you know they're mature? They are mature when they are growing together in love. The Bible reveals to us the nature of God. The Bible says that God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John three sixteen. Uh, Woody, I think, quoted that this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we were created in the image and the likeness of God, being born again, we are called to reflect the nature of God. We are to grow up into him. We become like him if we too, by, by becoming people of love. John 13 and 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All right. Reminds me of a little joke I told the other day. Some of you heard it already. There was a guy living on an island for 10 years. He was shipwrecked. <laughs> all by himself on an island, trying to get off, couldn't get off. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, after 10 years, a boat comes by, sees this SOS sign, and gets off in the little ship. The captain, a couple of the screw, gets off in there and goes to investigate and finds a guy there, Harry, you know, been on there 10 years, you know. And he says, hey, uh, thank you so much for stopping. I've been trying to get off this island for 10 years. And there were three shacks on that island that he had built. And he said, well, aren't you the only one on this island? He said, yeah. He said, why do you got three huts over there? He said, well, uh, I'll, let me just show you them, and I'll tell you what, this, what they are. This one is the hut where I live. Well, that makes sense. Right, that's hut where you live. He said, well, what about this second hut over here? It's a little bit bigger. What's that for? He said, well, that's the church that I go to. Okay, well, that's the church you go to. What about the third hut over there? He said, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> They'll know you're Christians by your love to one another. Now how many times we've divided and have different fractions and different congregations in different places because we can't stand what this other person believes or what this other person is saying or what this other person did or what color they pick. We don't like each other. So we start another church. We don't have any of them Hispanics in church. We let Hispanics in there. We're leaving. We start another church. Did you know I'm Hispanic? 
<laughs> you know now. You mean we got to love people of other races? Absolutely. Ethnicities? Yes. Cultures? Yes. Everybody. Why? Because we've all been saved by the blood of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? John 15 and 13, greater love is no one than this, than they lay down one's life for their friends. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Hear what I'm saying. A lot of marriages today aren't based on God's covenant love. They're based on uh, selfish love. If you make me happy, I'll stay with you. I'll love you as long as you make me happy. That's not love. That's not biblical love. That's self-love. Because the Bible says love seeks not his own. Well, what is biblical uh, covenant love? Uh, uh, the, uh, the greater love is no one than this, than they lay down their life for their friends, lay down their life for their spouse, lay down their life for their children. Well, they're not making me happy. It's not about whether they make you happy or not. Love is not concerned with whether they make you happy. Love is concerned with giving your life for those whom you love. And what you'll find is that as you give of yourself, God will give you joy. Because you're acting like Him. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We can get people saved, filled with the Spirit, grow our churches, increase our coffers, build bigger buildings, and convince ourselves that we're being successful in our, in our endeavors to do the will of God. However, if we do all these things, but either we're doing it out of duty or the people that we're re reaching don't develop a love for God and a love for one another, then can we really say that we've been successful in doing God's will? You see, we can do all the right things for the wrong reasons. God wants us to do the right things for the right reason. And the reason is a heart of love for God and a heart of love for people and a heart of love for the lost. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as itself. Oh, we want to build a great organization, big institution, big building, lots of people in here, but you can't stand each other. You only come... Just to, to, I'm not saying y'all, I'm just saying if you only come just to hear a good sermon. Can't even get that here. You come just to, just to be entertained. Uh-uh. Are you entertained? No. That's not why you come. Right? We come because we love God. And if you love, if you say you love God and you don't keep His commandments then you don't really love God. Because if you say you love God, you're going to keep His commandments. You're going to do what He says, right? We are to do His will because of love. We are to serve others because of love. We're to reach the lost because of love. Everything that we're called to be and do is founded on God's heart of love. Without love, we are but noisy gongs and clanging cymbals, like Marty up here. <laughs> Marty says, hey, we need to mic our, 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 our symbol. I said, no, we can hear him just fine. But his aren't clanging and noisy. His sound really good. 
Without love, we're but noisy gods. This is biblical terminology. With love, we are unstoppable because nothing can overcome the power of love. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And by the way, while I was reading that, I don't know if it's a word of knowledge or not. He said, well, why isn't it working for me? Because of bitterness and unforgiveness will, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Will, yeah, hinder the love of God flowing in you and through you. Well, you don't know what they did. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with God. You don't know. We could say, uh, you know, he could say, God could say to us, you don't know what you did. We didn't do that. He gave because love gives. Why should I forgive somebody? Because Christ forgave you. And the biblical parallel is he forgave you billions and billions of dollars worth of debt. And somebody owes you, not a penny, somebody owes you maybe ten dollars or $20,000. That's a lot of money for us. If it was a dollar, no problem. Ten dollars, no problem. But they owe us twenty. I'm, we're talking metaphorical, okay? Twenty thousand, thirty thousand. This is what they owe me. I'm not just going to let it go. But God let go billions of dollars. And in His, he, what He was saying is, I've done for you. In the strength of what I've done, you go and do that for others. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so he said, well, they don't deserve for me to forgive them. Well, no, it, it, it has nothing to do with that. Forgiveness is not whether they deserve it or not. It's an act of obedience. It's an act. Well, I don't feel like forgiving them. Well, it's not about whether you feel like. You will never feel like forgiving something. It's an act of your will. I don't feel like paying my taxes. I will never feel like paying my taxes. I'm sorry. But I don't pay my taxes because I feel like I pay my taxes because it's my duty. I do it as an act of my will. And I choose to do it in obedience to the commands that God said to us to obey those in authority over you. And Jesus said to forgive one another. And so as an act of my will, I say, well, Lord, I will do what you ask me, but it's hard. Well, he didn't ask you what it's hard. He said, do it. He said, but he'll meet you there. So you, you got to understand, and I'm, I'm getting off on something tangent, but I feel like the Lord wants me to talk about it. you got to understand, uh, people, people, unforgiveness is uh, they owe me a debt that I'm not willing to let go. And we think, well, if I forgive them, it's going to validate what they did in my life. No, it won't. If I forgive them, I'm going to have to let them back in my life. No, it won't. You see, because forgiveness and trust are two different things. And this is an example I like, I like to use, okay? If somebody came and stabbed me with a knife, all right, I'm going to have a hard time with that person, right? <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time with that person. If I survive, okay, but the problem is they stab me with a knife and the external wound heals, but the internal wound doesn't. And they, maybe they did it for no good reason at all. They just one day, they were in a bad mood, they came and stabbed me. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, 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 I don't, I, and the Lord says, you need to forgive them. 
I will forgive them because the Lord said to do it. But don't confuse the issue. I'm not going to let them around me with a knife anymore. That's trust. Forgiveness is, I'm not going to hold this against you. Trust is, I'm not going to trust you back into my life until you show yourself, uh, uh, you know, a good steward of being of knives or, or we get rid of all the knives in your house. So I can forgive somebody and not be at a point where I let them back into my life. But the anger and the hurt and the pain that I'm carrying, we think that, well, I'm going to make you pay. And you say, well, I don't make anybody pay. Yes, you do. By being mad at them, you think you're making them pay. By not talking to them, you think you're making them pay. By talking bad about them, you think you're making them pay. Right? That's all you're trying to do is make them pay for what they did to you. And until they pay, you're going to keep being mad. You're going to keep being bitter. You're going to keep being all, or you're going to just, I'm never going to think about them again. Well, you're making them pay. Right? So the thing is about unforgiveness is unforgiveness, I love this illustration. Unforgiveness is I'm going to drink this poison and wait for you to die. The problem is the person that you're angry against, they're out there having a good time. They're happy. They're joyful. They ain't got no problems. And, they, they, you know, you hear you are miserable. And they're just, yeah. Earl's up here dancing with his granddaughter, just having a good old time. You're having to go to the cardiologist. You're having to go to, the, you know, the, the family doctor. you got all these medical problems, all that kind of stuff. And they're just there having a good time. Well, oh, I'm just going to... See, you're drinking the poison, and you're thinking that they're the ones that are going to die. The only one that's affected by unforgiveness is you. The enemy convinces us in some twisted way that if we hold unforgiveness and bitterness against somebody, we're going to make them pay. No, the only one that pays is you. It's actually a, tr a prison that you, 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 you go into on your own, and you close the door, and you can't get out until you forgive. Right? Why should I forgive? Because the Lord forgave you. And if you want to be free, he who the Son sets free is free indeed, you've got to forgive. I don't know how I got off on that, but maybe you're here this morning and you need some help with that. Okay? Today is the day for you to be free. Because what happens is you'll think to yourself, I can't, I won't, I don't feel it, it's impossible. But when you obey, God's grace meets you at your point of obedience and he helps you to do what you cannot do on your own. You hear what I'm saying? He helps you to do, whether it be a teacher, whether it be a mentor, whether it be a neighbor, a friend, a, a loved one. He helps you. When you choose to come, I feel the presence of the Lord so strongly. The Lord's wanting to touch people today. When you choose to forgive, he meets you there and he gives you grace as you take that step of obedience and say, Lord, because you told me to, I'm going to release them. As you take that step, the grace helps you to do what you cannot do on your own. Well, let me wrap it up, and then we'll pray. What we learned today is that the final part of this process was the restoration of the city walls. The restoration of the temple had cemented the worship of God in the land that teaches somebody has a tongue or a prophetic word. Hold on to that just for a minute, and we'll let you go. 
The teaching of the word had centered life around the truths of God. Now the rebuilding of the walls would establish the security of the people in the land so they could move from being harassed by the enemy into an offensive position and bring the rule and reign of God to bear in the land. You see, you can't bring the rule and reign of God to bear in the land when you're being held captive by bitterness and anger. The walls and gates were a place of strength and protection that allowed the word of God to be established and enacted. The walls were ultimately a place of growth and maturity in God and the things of God, and bitterness and unforgiveness will keep you stunted. It's like, like placing a rubber band around a, a, a tree branch and thinking that the sap or the life is going to grow out to the ends of the branch, but it actually cuts off the life to it. God is committed to the full maturation of the church, and what we learn today is that of the utmost concern in that process is that the church become a people who love. They are to love God and serve him out of love, and they are in that love to serve one another and reach the lost souls of this world. Love is one of the chief goals and the primary sign of maturity. Caring for others is the fruit of a mature human being, and it's the hallmark of God's pride, should be the hallmark of God's pride, the church. It is his ultimate aim for you and I. 1 John 3, 2 through 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So I'm going to stop.